Well, we have made it to Mark chapter 7. It's page 712 in your pew Bibles. I'd like you to turn to it. We're going to work through the whole chapter today. We're taking somewhat large steps through this gospel, but that will allow us to get to the events around the Passion Week, right around Easter. And so I'm looking forward to taking that. And today, as has been the case, we're going to look at what looks like three distinct events. But I believe, as we've learned, that Mark is painting a beautiful picture for us. And these are just three more views. And in fact, at the end of today, we're going to have a little bit of a pause. Because I think we're at that point in the gospel where Mark has been painting this picture. And he's focusing on two key questions. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Him? And you remember we said, if you get those questions right, you get everything following with that. But if you don't get those right, then nothing else matters. And there's a moment at the end of this chapter, I think, where Mark backs up and he's saying, do you see what I'm seeing? Are you seeing what I want you to see? And let's remember that Mark wrote this gospel to believers in Rome, Gentile believers, who had no recorded teaching yet for them to follow. And there's something very specific he wants them to understand about Jesus. And I believe we see that in chapter 7 more than in any other passage we've studied so far. We're going to see direct allusion to the Gentiles and the part that they, are, they play in, in Jesus' mission and plan. And so because of that, I want you to pay careful attention and remember that you and I largely are the same target audience 2,000 years later. Most of us are not descendants of the Jewish people. Most of us are Gentiles. Two years ago, I was gifted with a DNA test, and I got what I mostly expect, and I'm Irish, German, English, and it turns out 4% Jewish. I'll take it. But like you, were it not for the gospel coming to the Romans and to the, to the world through them, uh, we would not be sitting here today listening to these words, which I think are very relevant for us in understanding who Jesus was. And so we're going to begin by this encounter that's been brewing between Jesus and the Pharisees. We've seen them now multiple times leading up to this point, and Jesus has engaged them as they're complaining and objecting to what he's doing and the way his disciples are acting. But now what's going to happen is this has come to a head and Jesus is going to take them on. He's going right at them now. So we've built to this moment. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Follow along with me. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. And saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. If you, if you have your own Bible, you might want to underline that phrase, tradition of the elders. It's key to understanding what's going on here. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. 
Now, you may notice that that particular section is in parentheses. Did you notice that? And that's because Mark knows he's writing to Romans who are unfamiliar with Judaism and its practices. And so there are four such parenthetic statements in this chapter as he explains some of the culture. And I'm glad he does because, frankly, if I just read it without that explanation, I'd kind of be on the side of the Pharisees. Wash your hands before you eat, right? But that's not all that's going on here. There's something very spiritual that's happening uh, that he's really talking about. Let's continue to read. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the very word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, Arrogance and folly, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now we'll pause there and we'll explore this confrontation that takes place here. So what the Pharisees are talking about is not hygiene. They're talking about the traditions that come down from first the oral traditions and eventually were encoded into the Mishnah that laid rule upon rule, external traditions and rules and requirements on top of God's commandments. Now, the Pharisees come across as quite villainous here, but their history started quite nobly. About 300 B.C., Alexander the Great starts spreading Greek civilization and their thought process, their, their way of thinking and viewing the world, 
to even this part of the world. And by 200 B.C., a whole generation of young adults had begun to move away from the traditions of the Word of God, the true Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, and began thinking more in a secular Greek way. And so Phariseeism actually started as a, a, a revival, as an evangelistic ministry to call young adults back to the Word of God and also to invite Gentiles to come into God and become God-fearers and God-walkers. But over the years, over the centuries, as is so often the case with a movement that starts well, things become traditions. And then discussions and debates about Scripture work their way into practices and requirements. And then eventually, instead of being traditions, they become expectations and requirements and and legalism begins to set in and by the time Jesus comes Phariseeism was far more about the tradition of the elders than about God's commands and so it was more like this and that's what Jesus is targeting so the tradition of the elders has a lot to do with what we call ceremonial cleansing and being unclean. The Jewish people make a big deal about unclean. That means sacramentally unclean. Something that as God's people I can't associate with. You've seen it throughout this series as we talked about blood issues and, 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 and illness and all these kinds of things that Jewish people and Pharisees in particular were righteously legalistic about. They could not touch or associate with because they would become unworthy to God. That's what it meant to be unclean. This is what they're talking about here. The Mishnah had so many different ways that you as a Jewish person needed to ceremonially wash. And particularly before eating, the Hebrew word for that cleansing was called the raising of hands. And there was a way the hands were held and a way they were poured that had less to do with actual hygiene and more to do with... Uh, a spiritual thought that I'm making myself worthy by the cleaning. Now, Jesus' disciples weren't following that. So this is what they're going after. And so here's what I want you to understand. By the time Jesus comes to earth, Phariseeism had become such a closed legalistic set of ideas that they may as well have left the true commands of God behind because it was all about the traditions of the elders. In effect, Phariseeism became a man-made religion. And so what we have the opportunity to do today is to look, by looking at Phariseeism, at the shortcomings of all man-made religions. Now, sociologically, Christianity is referred to as one of the great religions of the world, and in the most general sense, we can, we can concede to that. But from a theological, biblical process, I want to be clear. I don't see myself as a practitioner of a religion by being a Christ follower, because Christ did not come to establish another great world religion. His mission was not about that. His mission was about restoring the relationship with God and bringing men and women back to God and ultimately bringing that recreation to all 
of creation. Jesus' mission was not to establish Christianity. And to some degree, we have fallen over the last 2,000 years into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into about the Old Testament. We begin to have religious debates, and that works its way into certain ways that we do things and certain things that we don't do, and we begin to judge each other by those things, and all of a sudden, we're more concerned about the way we've always done it than what God really wants to do in us. Because we're all by nature Pharisees. And what I mean by that is our greatest human weakness in our fallenness is self-dependency. And at the heart of all religion is self-dependency. These are the things I'm going to believe or the way I'm going to live in order to make myself qualified for whatever God is as I understand Him to be. And so we do that. We do that in Christianity. We judge each other based on things that are all secondary to the Word of God. Right? So here's a good example. If you have ever gotten upset when you've come into a setting where things are done differently than you grew up with in the church, and, or you get upset about a change, and you say, we have always done it this way, what you're actually doing is identifying one of your idols. Think about that. This is important because we've always done it. Does that have really anything to do with Scripture? No, but we've always done it this way. Pharisee. Think about it. Think about it. Well, you don't do communion the way I, I, I'm used to. You don't do this or that. Whenever we do that, we're falling into the same trap. God has a different plan for us. And let's make sure, let, let's be clear. I, I'm proud to call myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But I'm not always proud of what the world thinks that means. I grew up, as you know, in a very legalistic setting, and we had our, our kind of rules. You know, we had things that we did not do, and we judged other people when they did. You know, we actually had a covenant in the back of our hymn book, today we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Well, when we did in my church in high school, before we celebrated the Lord's table, we'd read that covenant, and together, all of us would read a whole list of things that we promised we wouldn't do. We didn't smoke. That turned out to be a good thing, right? We didn't drink. We didn't go to movies, even if it was a Billy Graham movie or a Disney movie, because of the association, you know. Um, we didn't dance. You know why Baptists don't believe in premarital sex? It'll lead to dancing. Phariseeism, disregarding the word of God for man's traditions. It's, it's everywhere. It's in your life. And so how do we distinguish what it means to follow Jesus, what his mission was, and separate it out from religion? So I'm just going to quickly, through this story, list three ways that religion of all sorts falls short as we see it in the story of the Pharisees. And so, uh, let's just, let me get my notes where I should be here. There we go. So let's look, first of all, at, at verse 8. It says verse 7, but this is, it's verse 8. Oh, thank you. Who fixed that? Way to go, Emily. 
All right, let's say this together. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to human tradition. So the first way that religion fails is that it draws us into meaningless rules and obligations. And I want to caution the difference between meaningful and meaningless. Those of us doing these things we've been doing forever find them meaningful. But in the end, they're meaningless when it comes to what God wants to be doing in the world and what it means to follow Him. All religion draws us into these things. They, they really don't get us anywhere. And then the second thing we see is when he moves on to verse 9, and he actually gives some examples. He says, not only do you like, prioritize all these meaningless obligations, but you actually manipulate things so that you can kind of get around your own code and the Word of God. Verse 11, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then he goes on and he explains one example. This is a powerful example of how you can, in legalism, find your way around rules, right? The Bible says, God's word, God's command says, honor your father and mother. And in the Hebrew tradition, that is not just for pre-adolescence. That's for all of us for our whole life. You honor your parents. You take care of them in their old age the same way they took care of you when you were growing up. That, by the way, is my retirement plan. My kids know that. But let's say you were a Jew and you had lots of money and you thought, well, I'll, I, I want this money around you know, when my parents aren't around. Well, the Pharisees had worked it out where you could call it Corbain, which means you could call it dedicated to God, and you could put it in an account with temple or the, the synagogue, but it's never going to be used. It's, it's like your personal checking account, but because it's under the guise of Corbin, you can say, well, that's the Lord, so I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, that, that's not available for you. Wow. Another thing that they did uh, around Sabbath, some 1,500 laws around Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath as a gift the Pharisees created it to be a burden for people. And among one of the things was that you couldn't really leave your personal property on the Sabbath. That was their rules, not God's rule. So, but let's say they wanted to get around that. There was like they wanted to go to a neighbor's house or to some event someplace else. So on Friday before the Sabbath, they would take a cord, a long cord. They would leave one end at their house, and then they would take it across the neighborhood and put it somewhere in the house where they were going, and because it was attached by cord, now by their rules, that's part of their house, so they can go there on the Sabbath, right? That's kind of silly, but I bet you, you look at any legalistic system, there's ways people manipulate the system, and so that's the second thing. Legalism, religion, produces judgmentalism and hypocrisy. We judge others for failing, but yet we excuse ourselves. We manipulate. We work around. Why? Because in our hearts, none of us can ever be good enough for any system. So we have to create workarounds in order to convince ourselves we're succeeding. Now, there is a third thing that I think is really the strongest thing, and it, it comes out of this section, verses 14 to 20, and the primary passage is 21 through 23, summarized. Let's say this together. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come and make a person unclean. 
Here is the greatest failure of religion. It doesn't address the real issue, which is the brokenness of your soul. You can't externally force yourself to live in such a way that's good enough that fixes what's broken deep inside of us. That's what Jesus is getting at. These rules and regulations, hey, the food goes in, it goes out. Doesn't really matter. It's what comes out that proves where the real brokenness. Religion can't fix a broken soul. That requires divine intervention and transformation. Think about that. that. That's really, that's amazingly powerful. And that's what Jesus came to bring was that deep inner transformation. Uh, John 3, 17 is what's going to be on the screen. But the verse before it is one of the more famous verses of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, this is Jesus' own words, speaking about himself, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he goes on and says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. See, even the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament said that the heart, above all things, is deceitfully wicked and beyond cure. Even in the Old Testament, the prophets understood that even God's true law was not given to us as some standard that if we keep, we'll be right before God, because none of us could ultimately keep it. And that's why besides the moral law, they also had the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin, because we all fall short. Even God's commands aren't there as your path to righteousness and acceptance to God. Because we will all fail ultimately because there's something broken deep inside us. Now, let me, let me kind of bring this home for some of you. I love the thought that the journey is a place where people come and explore who Jesus is. And I hope that you, those of you that are at that point know that you are welcome to be here. We're, there's no such thing as a stupid question. You don't have to understand everything. I hope you get something. And we're always aware and willing to help you grow in your understanding. But this could be a moment where you understand the difference between Christianity as a religion, as an effort, and the work that God wants to do in your life that is real faith, you see. It's not, you may be working real hard at doing all the Christian stuff. You know, you may, be, you may have said, I'm going to read the Bible. Great, by all means, read the Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hang out with these Christians. I'm going to start living like these Christians. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to make sure I come to church. Those are all wonderful things to do. But even those won't fix your soul. And if you're dependent on them, you probably know that inside a change is not happening by even this religion. Because Christ wants to come in and heal that soul through his redemptive work. That's why he came. Because he loved us. And now we move on, and we see that being lived out toward two people that represent a very particular demographic, and that is non-Jewish people. 
And I believe that is why Mark chooses this moment, because he's painting a broad picture to contrast Jesus' mission with the idea of religion and mission that the Pharisees represent. So let's go on. We're going to read two, these two uh, events that take place. The first is Jesus delivering the daughter of a Greek woman from demon possession. Verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, we've already seen Jesus do uh, battle with demons so far in the Gospel of Mark, right? So we're familiar with that, and you can guess what's going to happen here. The girl's going to be delivered. But what is unique about this moment is the woman. She's a Greek. You see, the Jewish people didn't associate with Gentiles, in particular the Pharisees, because it made them, by their thinking, unclean. Jesus shows us his mission is bigger than any single people when he ministers to this woman. But what he says next is a little alarming if you don't understand it. Verse 27, Jesus' response. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Who are you and what did you do with my Jesus? What is that all about? He's, he's basically quoting, uh, you know, a Jewish slang by saying, you know, Gentiles are dogs. Let the children eat. Is Jesus, what is he doing? What is he doing? That, that doesn't sound like anything that he would say. Exactly. What he's doing is he's kind of quoting a popular notion in Judaism, remember who's around him. The disciples are around him. Maybe some of the Pharisees and his enemies are around him. And, and, and this, this conversation is actually somewhat whimsical. So I picture Jesus saying this with a little glint in his eye and a little wink. He's leading her into something. He's provoking learning by saying this. He's not expressing his opinion. And he gets what he's looking for from her when she responds. Verse 29. Oh no, verse 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he goes on and says, that's the right answer. That's what I was looking for. And so because of that, you go home. Your daughter's been delivered. I love that. Now, in all the Gospels, this is the only argument that Jesus loses. <laughs> or does he? What are we meant to see here? Here's the thing. The Pharisees excluded people. Jesus includes everyone who comes to him by faith. Then he goes on, he travels to another region where we see this beautiful encounter with a deaf mute. 
Verse 31, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but, of course, the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, many people have just looked at this from a surface image and thought there was some mojo to the motion. You know, what Jesus did somehow we do when we're healing people. Maybe, maybe you've seen faith healers on TV do this thing where they touch the ears and they slap the mouth because Jesus did that, right? There's something ceremonial about what he's doing. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think it's far more personal and beautiful. I want you to picture, first of all, who he is ministering to. It's a man who cannot hear and cannot speak. And so how does he engage incarnationally, relationally? How does he step into this man's world in order to bring him restoration? He speaks his language is what he does. He pulls him aside so he has his undivided attention without distraction. He touches the ears that do not hear. He touches his own lips and the lips that do not speak. He looks up to heaven and he sighs in saying, I care about this. I'm going to ask the Father to minister to you. He's speaking his language. And then the first words the man hears are Jesus' words in Aramaic, Ephatha, be opened. And he's healed. It's amazing. And that's exactly where Mark wants us right now. He doesn't want us to debate the method. He wants us to look at the majesty of who Jesus is in this picture. He's painting it. He's saying, do you see what I'm Tell what I'm showing you about this man. And this is what we see. He wants us to be right here at the end of the chapter. Verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He does everything well. That word overwhelmed is the word astounded. It shows up twice in the Gospel of Mark. But that word amazed shows up 13 times in the Gospel of Mark. When we say to ourselves, how does Mark want us to be answering the big question, who is Jesus? This is the reaction he's looking for from us over and over and over again. Do you see it? He wants us to be amazed. 
He does everything well. That word well in Greek means beautifully, wonderfully, completely, perfectly. He does it all so well. Do you see it? Are you amazed? So when we step back from this chapter, we see two different views of Jesus. We see the Pharisees who look at Jesus through religious legalism and everything they see, they say, he does everything wrong. And then you see the others who look at Jesus with wonder and amazement and say, he does everything beautifully. Where do you land? See, this is where we're meant to be at this moment. Same way Jesus includes everyone who comes to him in love and offers healing and faith and salvation and restoration. In the same way, he enters into that deaf-mute's world and communicates his love to him and then brings restoration. He does that to each one of us who will open up our lives to him by faith. And when he does it, it's amazing and beautiful. And for some of you, this may be that moment where you recognize it's not about the religion, even if it's the right one. It's about the relationship. It's about opening my heart to Jesus and letting Him fix what only divine intervention can fix, my soul, my heart. And then out of that, I can live a life for His glory. Right? Let's pray together. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment, but I, I just want to pray. And perhaps as I do, let me encourage those of you who realize this might be a de decisive moment in your relationship with the Lord. Just now as you're there, just open up your heart to Him. Just recognize you will never be good enough, but God was good enough for all of us. And He can fix that deep soul in you. He can bring forgiveness and grace and healing. He'll come into your life. He'll, he'll fill you with the Holy Spirit and enable you to live a life worthy for Him. Just open your heart to Him by faith. Admit that need for forgiveness. Open up your life to Him as your Savior and Lord. You can do that even right now. You can do it if you're listening on the podcast right where you are. He hears you. He includes you if you ask Him. Father, we thank You. Each of us that has had that moment of surrender to You, and as we've watched You over the years do a beautiful work in us, even in the hardest of circumstances and, and difficulties, even in our worst failures, You do a beautiful thing in us because of grace, because of Jesus. We thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the Dagos to come up, and they're going to lead us in some singing as we prepare for the Lord's table. I'm going to ask the servers to come as well. There'll be servers over here for those of you in the balcony, and then down front. If you know Jesus as your Savior, we invite you to come. You may want to know, well, Tom, why do you do communion this way? We just sort of fell into it. It's the way we've always done it. No, that's good. Okay. 
That's actually not true. But I, I think it's a beautiful way for us just to move together. This is a very corporate thing we're going to do. I'm going to pray and you come forward and you take the bread and the server will remind you it represents the body of Jesus that was suspended between heaven and earth as a bridge to God. And then you take that bread and you dip it in the cup, the juice, and the server will remind you that it represents the blood of Jesus, the shedding of which made it possible for your sins to be forgiven, for your soul to be healed and restored. And so what, what a perfect reminder to end our service by taking this together. If you are unable to get up and move, just raise your hand and Susan will find you and minister to you where you are. Come down the center aisles, exit out the outer aisles. Uh, yeah, let's, let's celebrate this gift together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for a glorious Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this gift, this little ceremony that pulls us back to that point of grace and that great act of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.